If you would like to earn CPE credit for listening to the show, visit earmarkcpe.com, download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Now on to the show. From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. FPNA Today is brought to you by DataRails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FPNA. We will provide you with actionable advice about financial planning and analysis. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FPNA. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest on the show, Carmen Turner. Carmen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. So a little bit about Carmen. Carmen comes to us from the greater Chicago area. She recently launched her own FPNA consulting practice called Carmen Consulting Group. She earned her bachelor's degree from Michigan State University and her MBA from Wayne State University. She has also worked for multiple companies in both finance and FP&A roles. And so, Carmen, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background. Sure. Absolutely. So I've been in FP&A for 14 years. Like you said, Paul, working for some various companies, large and small organizations in various industries, such as financial services, learning science, education, and healthcare technology. And basically what I've done is I've worked to help the businesses manage their budgets to target and understand their financial story. That last part right there, understanding their financial story is so key because if you don't understand what's going on with the numbers, it's hard for you to make decisions on how to move your business forward. Totally agree. And I love that part about understanding the financial stories. So can you tell us, how did you get started in FP&A? Like what led to you being an FP&A? Yeah, great question. Great question. I have sort of a unique entry into FP&A. Um, I worked for another company years and years ago. I was in another field and all of those things. And the opportunity came for me to branch off and do something else. And so it was actually getting my MBA and learning finance. I just found it so intriguing and wanted to help. I had been on the other side where kind of the spending had taken place. And so I wanted to actually help control that spending and help companies be more profitable and even help others in the business understand that how their decisions impacted the financial story. I think, again, a lot of times people don't know that what they do on a daily basis has some sort of impact and they don't understand it and they continue to do things. So the more people understand things, then for me, it's better for the company and the overall business. So I guess that was a long way in saying, (laughs) coming from the other side, I started my journey, got my MBA, and then landed a role at, my first role was actually with uh, CME Group. And so got started there and helping them with budgeting and things like that. And so that's pretty much how I got started. So it was really out of uh, MBA school, it sounds like, that you kind of started on the FP&A journey, wanted to see the other side of things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I had seen, again, that side where people weren't so focused on the finances is, is what I'll say it is. What are you saying? Not everybody has that financial discipline and that financial lens that's needed to run a company? Absolutely not. And it may not be on purpose, right? But it's just they're trying to get what they need to do done. And so they're like, this is what I need. This is what I need to do. I'm not really concerned about how much it costs. You guys have lots of money. At least that's what they think. (laughs) I hear you. There's a lot of times... This is American Express or, you know, whatever big company, you know, we have plenty of money. You're telling me you can't spend $10,000 here? Exactly. Well, it's not that we can't spend it. It's not a wise use of our money. Let's rethink how we're going to deploy that capital, right? That kind of conversation. And usually when you put it in those terms and help them understand why and the return on it, they get it. Absolutely. Versus just saying no, which unfortunately has often been the reputation finance has built over the years is kind of the no department, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and helping them again, understand it versus just saying, so they see numbers, like they see stuff on the news. They may not even pay attention internally with the company about how much revenue the company is generating and how much they're spending and things like that. 
But if they hear it externally, say, oh, that's a $10 billion company. I'm making up numbers here. You know, they're like, oh, well, we can, I can buy this or I can do that. There's no problem. They're not understanding really what's going on. And for me, the education of it all is really what I enjoy about FP&A. When you said, you know, $10 billion company, it reminded me, I started my career with the government in procurement, so not FP&A at all. And there used to be a joke some people would say sometimes in the government, you know, a billion here, a billion there, pretty soon it adds up to real money. (laughs) It's like, because you're dealing with just such big numbers sometimes, right? You're talking trillions of dollars for the budget of the government. You know, and that was just mind blowing for a kid out of college or somebody will kind of throw around a term like that, like a billion here, a billion, like, yeah, you mean my uh, paycheck of... <laughs> yeah, like my paycheck is just really... Oh, wow, we have that much money? <laughs> it, yeah, exactly. So I totally know what you're talking about. It's a lot of its perspective and helping people understand it and what it means to the bottom line. So I know recently, and first, just congratulations, you recently started your own business. Thanks. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience has been like? You know, what led to you starting your own business and how's it going? Sure. So... The experience itself, it's been great so far. I think a lot of times people think they can just jump right in and start a business with no plan, no kind of direction on what they want. They see people starting businesses and people generating revenue. Well, yeah, okay, so you're generating revenue and things like that. What do you do with it? You know, so for me, it was more about being able to manage my time. And I say that loosely because generally when you start a business, You're spending more time (laughs) as you're getting it up and running, right? And you're doing all of the things yourself when you're first starting out. So before you may have had a marketing team, sales team, and all of those things, you become that person all wrapped up into one. And so for me, again, it was about managing time and helping small businesses be able to understand their finances and be able to continue to have, you know, longevity in their business because that's really what they started for is to make money, have longevity. We hear these stories all the time about businesses going under because, you know, managing finances was not at the top of the priority list when they started. They just wanted to start to have money start coming in and not understanding that it's really key to manage that money. So for me, that's what it's about. I focus on, again, budgeting, forecasting, strategy, you know, that managerial reporting that's so important for the team to understand, modeling, and that one word, education, educating them so that when they see something, they understand what's going on, they know what types of questions to ask, and they can continue to move forward. A lot of great advice there. I loved how you said, and when you start a business, so often people just, okay, money's coming in, right? knowing how to manage the money. Oh, you mean I have to pay taxes? Like I was talking to a friend who's given a lot of advice. He used to be a consultant that would help a lot of small businesses and help them with strategy and things. And he's like, I probably don't need to tell you this. You're like, you're a little older and more mature than a lot of people do. But remember, when you get that big paycheck, there's taxes you have to pay. There's this, there's that. There's all these things that, you know, when you were employed by somebody, you didn't have to worry about. Remember, you have to worry about every single one of them. (laughs) You absolutely do. You absolutely do. And I also help people with personal finances as well as part of the Kerman Consulting Group because it's so important. You have to have a plan for your money, whether you're an individual or a business. You can't just be out there (laughs) with money in the bank or wherever you're keeping your money and you don't have a plan for it to either grow, to cover your expenses and things like that. And so to me, it's important. And that's really my passion is helping people to understand money because, hey, guess what? It makes the world go round. We have to deal with it every single day, right? That's just it. I mean, whether you like money, hate money, you have to deal with money. It's the society we live in and it's a necessary thing that we all need to survive. So you have to understand it and you might as well make it work for you instead of against you. Absolutely, absolutely. All right. Well, this is something I've kind of looked forward to asking you about. I know you uh, have the FP&A certification because you were involved in that process of helping put it together. And so let's start with you were involved, involved in helping create the original test for the FP&A certification. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Tell us a little bit about how you became involved. Sure. So I got started because I was looking for a professional organization to join so that I could start expanding my network. We know how important your network is (laughs) for you to either grow in your career, start a business, or whatever the case may be. And so I came across AFP. And at the time I was looking, they were recruiting 
finance professionals to assist in this process of developing this FPNA certification. And so they reached out to me. That was back in 2012. And I participated and have been a SME for them ever since. It's such a different process than you could ever imagine, you know, developing a exam for certification. You think, oh, it's just easy. Just come up with some questions, put it together and pass it out. It's so much more than that. The process has been a lot of work. It was like a lot of collaboration with different finance professionals in different industries, you know, across different countries and things like that. So it's not as simple as, well, let everybody write 10 questions and we'll put it all together and then (laughs) that's the certification. I don't know if people understand that. I know we've all in the past taken standardized tests and you're like, oh my gosh, you had to take this standardized test. And you think these people just sit around and come up with these different questions easily, but it's really eye-opening. It's really been an eye-opening experience. I bet it was. You know, there were two thoughts that came to mind. One, I had a class my freshman year of college where we had different people come in the lecture like every two weeks. It was a psychology course. And they each got to submit their own questions for the test. And the instructor didn't make sure they kind of all aligned. So you had totally different styles and types of questions. And it was one of the hardest tests I took because it was all over the place. There was just zero consistency. You need that in a test. My wife is a instructional designer. So she used to design college courses for University of Phoenix, worked at a library, you know, has worked for some others. So she talks about those type of things. Whenever I do training or different stuff, she's like, remember this, remember all the theory behind it. And so I I can appreciate that a little bit. I haven't, you know, developed a, a certification or been involved in that, but seeing her do some of those things, it is more involved than you think for sure. You know, what's some of the key learnings from that experience? Like, how did it help you become a better FP&A professional? Oh, yeah. Great question. So again, as I mentioned, collaborating with other finance professionals, as I'm sure you can appreciate, Paul, if you start out in like one industry in one position, you're kind of stuck in that position. And then that's all that you do, right? That's all that you know. You don't necessarily get to rotate into other departments or get different experiences. So working on this FPNA certification and collaborating with other professionals, I got to learn what other people were doing in other industries. Like my budgeting process may have been different than their budgeting process. And just again, learning about how companies handle things differently, some of the things they do to keep with their strategies and things like that. So for me, it was a great learning experience. Yes, we all know FP&A. You go to college, you get your degrees, you, you understand the basics. But being able to apply it and adjust it as times and things change, that was all part of this learning that happened with helping develop the certification. That makes sense to me. I get what you're saying. It sounds like it really helped with the application and thinking about the different ways to do it. Because I'm sure you know, we all work for companies, but you only see a couple different ways to do FP&A. And I imagine being on those boards and seeing all those different approaches, like, well, I referred to it as this, or that's how I thought about budgeting. And so I think we should ask this question. It's like, well, no, is that really best practice? And probably a lot of conversations like that, I'm guessing. Absolutely. A lot of conversations. And again, because it needed to be universal. So one country may use a term this way, and in another country, it means something totally different. So even just thinking about those things when you have to come up with an exam question, I don't want to say it was challenging, but it took some effort to get on the same page and make sure that it was a term that was understood across the board so that it was a level playing field for all that took the exam. Yeah. I mean, just a couple of examples recently I've seen, I have a partner I do uh, training with and we're working on a course and he was using the term contribution margin where I would typically use gross margin or gross profit. Right. And it's like, well, that's how we always called it in the industry I came from. And, you know, another example, I'm calling something flux. He's like, I've never used the term flux. Mm-hmm. You know, I always use different terms and just little things like that that you don't necessarily think of. And I'm sure we could come up with dozens of them. I mean, there's some we all recognize, you know, we all know revenue, net income, cogs, exactly, right? Balance sheet. There's a universal language. Then there's all the nuances. It's like English. Yeah. Right. Your version of English in Chicago is slightly different than mine, which is going to be quite a bit different from someone in London to someone in Australia. Absolutely. And it's no different with FP&A. Yeah, and it's the acronyms as well. Like an acronym that you have at your company may be different than an acronym that I have at my company. And so, again, just thinking about all those things and making sure that, again, it's understood by all just the questions so they even have the opportunity 
to perhaps get the answer right. You know, when you said acronyms, you reminded me, and I think you'll get a laugh out of this and hope our audience does as well. So I did Toastmasters when I was at American Express. And one time I had told myself, and I never did it, but I was going to do a Toastmaster speech and I'd put up the first part of it all on American Express acronyms because everybody in the club was American Express. So the whole speech would just be filled with nothing but acronyms. Oh, wow. Because we had so many. And I just thought, you know, that'd be kind of fun because everybody could relate to it and be like, that's pretty creative. So yeah, no question. The acronyms we have in a company, sometimes they're just overwhelming when you first join and you're like, okay, where's the dictionary? Oh, absolutely. It's like you need a dictionary. It's like, can you give me the acronym dictionary so that I can at least know what you guys are talking about in these first? Yep. And American Express had one on a website. They had an acronym site. Oh, wow. See, that's great because most companies don't. And you're constantly asking, what is it? And I'm like, hey, can we just put one together so that, you know, when new people start, they can hit the ground running, at least with knowing what people are talking about. Yeah, it was really nice that they had one because that's the only company I've gone to where they've had that. So, <laughs> you know, spend a little bit more on the FP, FP&A certification before we move on. You know, if someone's considering taking it, what advice would you offer them? Sure. First of all, go for it. Time is going to be passing anyway. Why not get a certification that's going to add to your skill set And to let people know that you have that foundation necessary to be able to contribute to the company quickly. You know, it's so important to have a solid foundation is what I like to call it. And this certification helps to show that, yes, this person has the basic requisite knowledge needed to be able to maneuver in the company and come up with different strategies, you know, and things like that, communicate with people. It it covers all different types of things on the certification. You may think it just covers financial information, but it also is, again, which I'm sure people who have looked at the material before, communication, presentations, and all of those things. So just having that basic solid foundation helps for people to see as you're out looking for maybe another job or something that you're prepared and you can contribute immediately to the organization. And in a competitive market, if you have it, then that just puts you one leg up against the competition, you know? Last question on the subject. And this is a totally selfish one. Any advice for me as I'm studying for it? You know, any uh, cheat sheets? No, I'm kidding on the cheat sheet. But any advice for me or anyone else who's actively studying? That's a great question. Actively studying, I would say focus on studying the foundational things, how you got started. Because sometimes people tend to overthink questions and try to be all elaborate and things like that when they're coming up with answers. And so again, to me, it's like focusing in on the question, maybe reading it a few times and just understanding foundational things and making sure you understand before you move forward. Good advice there. Focus on the foundational and then move forward. Make sure you're understanding those core concepts. Yes. And then if I heard it right, don't overthink it. Yeah. Not that I've ever been guilty of that. Oh, one. no, we none of us have, probably... right? <laughs> exactly. This is looking at your history, kind of preparing for this interview. One of the things I noticed, you spent quite a bit of time, I think you had three or four different roles, if I remember right, at McGraw-Hill, including multiple finance roles. So maybe can you start talking a little bit about that experience, what it was like supporting sales from a finance perspective? Sure, sure. So yeah, I did. I spent quite a bit of time at McGraw-Hill and I supported the sales team. And that included the reps, the managers, the VPs, and even the CSO. So as I started out, you know, in my first position at McGraw-Hill, it was mostly supporting the reps and helping them to come up with a price that was optimal for both the company and I, right? Now, one thing, I don't know, Paul, if you've worked with a sales team before, but one- Oh, I have. Okay. One thing that is quickly evident that became clear to me, that was my first time working with a sales team, is that they're always trying to sell. They were even trying to sell to me, right? And and by that, I mean, you know, because obviously I helped them with their budgeting and things like that telling me and selling me on why they needed this much money to get this particular task done. So understanding that was (laughs) was key in being able to work with them. So again, I worked with the sales team, managing their budgets, you know, reviewing their expenses with them. I also built a sales commission model and, you know, that was critical. So they always had lots of questions about that, right? (laughs) And how that works and things of that nature. 
And then their revenue proposals, again, the pricing to go to the market with. And so reviewing those with them, coming up again with that optimal pricing. One thing that I will say was key in establishing a good relationship with the sales team was building that partnership. I think you mentioned it earlier, Paul, where finance is known as the team of no, you know, and so they automatically have sort of that assumption built in that you're just always going to say no. So they're constantly trying to persuade you, I'll call it persuasion, (laughs) persuade you to say yes to whatever it is that they want. So for me, that was a great learning experience in just making them feel like a partner versus you dictating to them what was going on. And I can tell you with working with the sales team, there's never a dull moment. There was always something to be done. They were always out, again, selling, which is what you want them to do. And so part of it involved coming up with processes that quickly allowed me to get them an answer back so that they could move fast and not get beat out by the competition. Yeah, because I'm sure if you took a few days, they let you know they're going to lose the sell, whether they were or not. Always trying to prod you to go because we could lose the deal. If you took five minutes to answer, I'm, I'm exaggerating here, but <laughs> not by much. <laughs> it was a great experience. It was great working with the whole sales organization itself. Sometimes people just work with the sales reps or the CSO or the VP or whatever the case may be. I got to work with all of them in different capacities, and that helped to build a lot of trust so that they would come to me when they had things where they wouldn't just normally go and spend. (laughs) They would first ask and say, hey, this is what I want to do and kind of get some advice on how it could be done. Again, so it's beneficial for everybody. So that was great. And that helped to learn the whole organization and what role everyone played and how to best communicate the information. Because I'm sure you can imagine, Paul, communicating information across all of those different levels is completely different, right? Yeah, how you're communicating to the chief sales or chief revenue officer is different than how you're communicating to a BDR. You know, just because they're at a different level, they would need different level of detail and information and and all those types of things. They have different focuses, different incentives, and understanding those can help you craft the communication to those different levels and everything in between. Yeah, so some of the things that I would say if someone was looking to work with sales, you know, and supporting sales or, you know, just getting started or thinking about it, there are five things that I kind of recommend. The first one is to listen and that's to understand their needs. A lot of times we listen, but we're not listening. We're just listening till they stop talking so then we can tell them what to do, right? And so... Wait, what? <laughs> I'm kidding. (laughs) Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So listen to understand their needs. The second thing is to learn, right? To learn their sales process and their cycle. Because this helps you to make sure you're incorporating revenue and expenses and things in the right periods. You have to understand that process. And the only way you can do that is to learn from them. And that may involve sometimes going on a sales call with them just to see how things go. I I had lots of opportunities to participate in different sales calls, understand what the customer was thinking about, what the customer's needs were, which helped analyzing the situation and, and giving more better input. Third thing is, I'll say build. And by that, I mean build a partnership so that they feel like they're being heard, you're addressing their needs and understood. Now, are you going to say yes to everything that they ask for? Absolutely not. <laughs> but at least if you're building that partnership, they feel like you've worked on it together and we've come to a great resolution for both parties, you know, within the bounds of our financials, right? The fourth thing is communicate. As we just discussed, you know, communicating to all those different levels is very different. But no matter what level it's on, you want to make sure it's in an understandable and actionable format something that they can do something with. Just giving them a sheet of numbers and expecting them to come back and say, hey, yeah, well, we can cut this or that. That doesn't work. You have to actually give them information in an understandable way where you say, look, you need to make a decision on this. Which way do you want to operate? And then that last one is educate when needed. Yes, there are some people that have financial knowledge in these roles. And then there are some who just, I don't want to know about finance. Just tell me what I need to do. 
but educating them so that they understand, again, what they're doing and how they do it impacts the bottom line. So, so those are five things that I would recommend if you're working to support sales team. Thank you. So if I can just resummarize that, there are five things that I heard there. There's listen, mm-hmm. learn their processes, mm-hmm. build relationships, mm-hmm. you know, really communicate. Mm-hmm. It's not enough to just listen. There needs to be that two-way communication. And then the fifth one was educate. That's correct. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's something we could use in a lot of areas of the business, but definitely with sales. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders. Multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop. Breathe. DataRails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place, secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up to date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel, embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FPNA machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. Another question I have, and something you said made me think about this. So this wasn't a direct question I had during our, you know, that I sent to you before, but one question that made me think of is sales commissions. Did you get involved in like helping with developing the plans, the incentives? Like what role did you play is the first question. Was it just kind of calculating them? And then the second question is, do you think that belongs in finance or where do you think, you know, is a natural place for calculation of sales commissions to sit? And I'm just kind of curious because there's a lot of different opinions on that. Yeah, sure, sure. So for me, it was more about the calculations and building the model based on plans that had been established prior, right? And so modeling that out and then also providing feedback and thought on what would be the best approach. So that was it, building the sales model, making sure that everything was included and that we could see at any point in time what that payout was going to look like at the end of the year as they worked towards goal and adjusting that again as things change with the business. Now, as far as who should that sit with, that's a great question because (laughs) it's a lot of the dollars a lot of times in a business. It's a lot of the dollars, right? You definitely want to reward your sales team for the hard work that they put in and bringing the business in. I mean, to be honest, if they're not bringing sales in, then how is the business operating, right? So you definitely want to reward them. I personally think that it should be an effort between sales and finance so that there are checks and balances. Meaning that, you know, sales and finance should work together to develop that. And I know you asked me where should it sit, but again, I think it should be both parties should be involved in helping establish that finance and saying, hey, you know, if we did it this way, this is how much we're going to pay out. What are we paying here or there? You know, and sales in saying that, well, this is the effort that it takes or things like that and, and helping to you know, get their message across as to why they feel like things need to happen. So for me, I think it needs to sit with both parties. And I would agree with you. I don't think there's, uh, you know, one necessarily right answer. I think there needs to be those checks and balances. There's some controls. Ultimately, whoever's calculating it, it needs to be signed off by finance, right? It's a big expense. You need to make sure that you don't have any uh, issues just from an agent kind of relationship, agent principal relationship in that, if it sells, it's getting paid and they're calculating them. You don't want somebody who's earning their money to be the one putting it all together without the proper checks and balances to make sure that you know there's no issues down the road. Absolutely. And that could also be an audit. Red flag if that were to happen, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. It could show up in an audit, right? I mean, it's a huge dollar expense. One of the biggest for many businesses. Mm-hmm, it is. Right? You know, commissions, you want to incentivize your salespeople. You want them to have the opportunity to earn well. 
they do a hard job and you want to reward them, but you got to also just you know, make sure you do it properly and the, all the incentives are aligned. So it's always an interesting discussion for me because actually I did sales commissions for a couple of years to the point where at one point they had me developing most of the plans, working with the salesperson. Like I actually wrote them. Oh, wow. I'd never done that before in any job. I'm like, wait, you want me to write the plans? I mean, I learned a ton. Mm -hmm. It's not how I would have done it if I was in charge, but it was a really good learning experience. I mean, put a ton of time into sales commissions and learned a lot, but it was definitely different than anywhere I've been. Yeah, you definitely have to make sure you're incentivizing the right behavior, Mm -hmm. right? Because you could be incentivizing people to get bring new business in but it's not long-term business, right? It's just, oh, they just did it for this cycle. Then that revenue is going to fall off next cycle because they've moved somewhere else because you're incentivizing the sales rep in the wrong way. So those are some things that definitely need to be considered. And I'm not sure necessarily all the time the sales team looks at it in that way is are they incentivizing the right behavior? Yeah. And, you know, fortunately, the head of sales worked really closely with me and reviewed them all. It's not like I was doing it in a vacuum by any means and HR and everybody else. And so it's a really good learning experience. And I agree with you about getting the incentives right. That's why you see any really large organizations typically have their own compensation team that coordinates with everybody. Because if you get big enough, it's such a huge expense and it's unique enough that you really want people that are experts in understanding incentives and behavior and, you know, FP&A can play a role and review them and ask questions. And I definitely think we should. I think, you know, those plans should be reviewed by finance for the financials to see if they make sense and anywhere else that we think we can add value from understanding the business. Absolutely. Well, I think we're on the similar pages there. So one other thing you'd mentioned in supporting sales, I don't think we talked about this, but if we did, correct me evaluating kind of new revenue generating proposals. It sounds like you probably did that a lot. You talked a little bit about that, but on revenue generating proposals, would it usually be the salespeople that come to you? Or is that something from the business to say, hey, we want to try launching this new thing? Or maybe walk through that just a little bit more. Sure, sure. So in answer to your question, was it the sales or the business? It could be both. If it was you know, a product that was already established and they're working with a customer trying to get the business, then the sales reps would come directly. They provide the information needed. And, you know, myself and the team would analyze it. And then we'd have a conversation about it. Right. I mean, sometimes the sales team didn't like having such a involved process because again, they move quick. They're moving on to the next sale. And Carmen, you're still talking about this one. And so, you know, having them submit to information. So part of that, you know, process took me helping them understand what information was needed because sometimes they would just say, hey, I want this price for this school. Six months, not enough information to (laughs) to make a a decision on. I need some more information here. So coming up with a, a process that allowed them to enter that information in and submit it and then managing expectations, right? And saying, hey, We'll get back to you within this amount of time. If you haven't heard from us, then please reach out. Well, you know, as soon as they submitted, they reach out. So <laughs> there was no. <laughs> as soon as they submitted, they reach out. And and you just, you have to love that because again, they're trying to get that sale. They're helping the business. But so that was part of the review of the proposals. And then, like I said, having a meeting to discuss it because generally when they came to you, it was outside of the normal pricing range. Like you have, yep. here's what you can offer, right? So they're only going to come to you when it's outside of that range. Yep. And usually if it's outside of the range, it's significantly outside of, <laughs> outside of the range. And so a discussion needs to be had. You know, again, we sometimes have to meet with the customer and things like that. Now, when it came to a new product, yes, you, you would meet with the business too. And sometimes you would provide some modeling to help say, hey, this is where we need to start our pricing or this is where things need to be. And so working with the business as well. And even sometimes on these deals that the sales reps came with, you would go back to the business, you know, the owners and say, hey, this is what they want to offer. What are your thoughts? Is there something we can do differently? So it was, it was a lot of collaboration with different business units sometimes to, to get things done, which, which I thought was great so that it wasn't just one person approving something. And then later on down the line, somebody will say, well, why did you approve that? Well, this way, everybody gets together, says, yep, this is what we want to do or no, this is not what we want to do and, and go from there. But when it comes to approving sales, sales proposals, 
I like what you mentioned. I'll just offer a couple things. Like how you said, you know, hey, if it was outside the range, it came close. So it's clear you had a process. And that's one of the most important things to me is have an established process and follow it. Hey, if it's within 10% of list price, you can approve it. If it's within 15%, your boss can approve it. If it's over 20, you need finance. And if it's over this, the committee has to approve it. Whatever that process may be, that's exactly that's exactly it. That, that was exactly the case is that, yeah, these are the different steps. These are the different things you need to consider. And then yeah. you need to make sure you follow it. Like I worked for a company and it's one of the things I fixed when I became the director is we had an approval process in our CRM where, hey, if it was over discount a certain amount, finance had to approve it before they could you know, finalize it. But it allowed them to generate the contract and the sales guys would call me, well, they already signed the contract. And I'm sitting there thinking, then why am I approving it? Like this process is backwards. So basically you're telling me, here's the deal I sold. You have to approve it. Yes, that happened. Oh my gosh, Paul. Yes, that would happen. They'd say, oh, this is a problem. I'd be like, nope, if you can come up this amount, then we'll be good to go. Well, we kind of already told them that this amount will be approved. Well, why are you contacting me now? <laughs> what at this point, what am I supposed to do? You offered it to the customer. So then there'd be more conversations. And again, trying to walk back to the customer with something different than what you've already promised them is always a challenge. So you're absolutely right in that there needs to be a process established ahead of time. And making sure you hold the sales reps accountable to that process is critical. Too. That's the biggest thing I would say is hold them accountable, make sure they get the approval ahead of time that. They're not saying things to the customer, promises they can't deliver on. Because salespeople, if you let them, they'll do that. And they'll, some of them will do it a lot. So, Especially if a competitor is standing right next to them. <laughs> yeah, they have the competitor's offer in their hands and it's $10 lower than their, oh yeah, we can go 15 Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what we're going to have. Yep, because they're thinking about their commission. They're thinking about their commission. <laughs> uh, that's funny. So that, that was a great conversation there on sales. We'll move on and just ask, so what is it that gets you excited every day about working in FP&A? What is it that gets you up in the morning? It's really simple. Being able to provide businesses the insights they need to make great business decisions. A lot of time, businesses are making decisions without insight. They're going on a gut feel, <laughs> you know, they're going on, oh, well, yeah, five years ago we did this and it worked. Let's try it again. Well, Paul, as you know, the, the market has been uncertain. The, the environment has just been uncertain in the last few years. And so for me, it's providing them that insight that's needed so that they can make a great business decision. And that requires analysis and all of those types of things. And again, providing it to them in a way that is understandable so that they know what they're looking at, understand it, and can make the right business decision. So for me, that's what it is, providing businesses the insight they need to make good business decisions. Love the answer there. And, I, and I'm happy to hear that because I'll tell any FP&A person, giving insights to the business to make the right decisions is the most important thing you can do. It's more important than the budget you put together. It's more important than the forecast. If you're not helping the business make right decisions, you're doing something wrong in your job. That's really key to FP&A. So I really appreciate you saying that because I think so often it's forgotten or it's not realized that that's really what it's all about. It's helping ensure the capital deployed is done in such a way that it maximizes the return, you know, the value for the shareholders, whatever that may be. That may not always be profit for not profits. You have a lot of different things, but maximizing that investment, using it the best way you can for your, for your business. I appreciate that answer. So next question here, do you have a favorite forecasting method that you like? You know, are you a rolling forecast monthly, quarterly? Just do budget and forget that whole forecasting thing. You know, R and O's, you're laughing because you're like, some days that would be my favorite. <laughs> well, you know, Paul, I know you can appreciate this. Well, you know, as soon as you finalize the budget, it's expired because something has changed with the business. And so if you were to just strictly operate on the budget, it doesn't quite give you the insight that you need to see where you're going to land at the end of the year because you're trying to stick to something that is no longer relevant. So for me, it's about a rolling forecast. You know, it's about looking at what's happened in the past, what's coming down the pipeline. Is that still relevant? Is that still going to happen? Because again, you know, when you do a budget, you do it a year ahead of time. 
And so again, the next day you're like, we're not going to have that deal anymore. So now we got to find something else. So we're not going to have this million dollars in revenue that we thought we were going to have. So now you got to figure out, okay, well, either we got to cut expenses or you got to fill that revenue gap. And so rolling forecast for me is the way to go. And I would say as often as possible, for some that may seem a bit much, but again, things are changing all the time nowadays. And so it's really important to stay on top of it because if you wait and do it, you know, six months in or something like that, then you don't have time to adjust to make sure you can still hit that financial target that you're going for at the end of the year. I'm a big fan of rolling forecasts. And in particular, I like R&O rolling forecasts where you just list risks and opportunities. You don't re-forecast everything, but really focus on those key drivers. And so the business can understand because you know how long it can take if you let a forecast take control of your life, which can do when they want every little detail and line item. And it's like, okay, this is immaterial. Let's focus on these A's that are going to drive the business where it needs to go versus worrying about $500 here or there. I mean, and that's exactly it, Paul. In one of my previous roles, that's exactly what we did. We talked about the risk and the opportunities. And then we talked about how to solve those. Because again, you didn't want to spend a lot of time. Okay, well, let's do every single line item and reforecast. Oh, okay, this line is going to change by $20. Again, you want to spend your time and the places that are going to make a difference. And so it's talking about the risk and opportunities, talking about that percentage of risk. Is this a high risk? Is this a low risk? Is this a medium risk? What can we do about it? How can we start working on it now? And so again, to me, starting that right at the beginning of the process is very important instead of waiting till you're six months in and now you don't have enough runway to get the job done that you said that you were going to do at the beginning of the year. I agree with you. I think we're on the same page there. So moving on, there's a couple of questions we like to ask everybody. These are some of our more standard questions as we're coming up near the end of our time. First one is, can you tell me about an accomplishment you're most proud of from your career? You know, if you're in a job interview and I asked you that question, what would be your answer? It may be a, a little different than most people. Again, for me, it's educating people on the finances and how what they do impacts it. So for me, it's seeing the light bulb go off to someone who didn't understand finance before, and now they understand it, and they're able to provide you more information that is useful for you to include in, as we just talked about, forecasting or something like that, to help us get closer to what we think is going to happen for the year. So for me, it's educating people. In fact, in one of my roles, we held a class that would say, hey, non-financial people, do you want to learn about finance? And we would teach people about the different terms and terminology and things like that so they could understand and understand how the business operated. So for me, it's seeing the light bulb go off when they finally get it. Appreciate that answer. Love the passion. And it is always rewarding when you see the light bulb go off, for sure. All right. So next question, we talked accomplishment. Now we're going to talk the opposite side of that. Can you tell about a time where you experienced a failure at work? And what did you learn from, you know, the failure from the experience? Maybe an analysis gone wrong, you know, or a change when you tried, you tried to implement something and it failed, a budget where you forgot a big expense. I've done that one. That's why I mentioned that one. I've unfortunately had that problem, but you know, just something where obviously didn't go as planned. And what did you learn from it? Sure. I mean, I hate to say it, Paul, that's an example that I, I was going to use is about the budget. Because, you know, when you're doing the budget, you're moving a million miles per hour. And if you don't have a solid process in place to collect the information for the budget, sometimes things can slip through the cracks, <laughs> right? <laughs> and sometimes those things are pretty hefty. Yes. And so that that's exactly the experience I had is that you're getting all this information from different places and a pretty large item slipped through the cracks. So how I handle it is first, you definitely go and tell your management, hey, look here, this is what we have. This is what I'm working on to solve that problem. So then it comes, okay, this is what we have to do. These are some of the things now that we may have to cut back in order to accommodate for this expense that was not was not given. But then after that, it's again, putting that process in place and not deviating from it. Because again, I'll use like the sales team as an example. 
they may come late in the game and say, oh, oops, I forgot to tell you, we have this vendor contract that's $50,000 and I forgot to tell you about it, but we've already signed the contract. And so that will definitely be an expense this year. So again, having the process in place, having deadlines set, and this is kind of how I do it, Paul. When it's a deadline where you have to turn in your budget to the powers, I'll call them the powers that be, I always move the deadline up for whoever I'm getting information from. Always give a buffer. If there's one piece of advice you take away from this episode, always give a buffer. That would be number one. Always give a buffer. Yes. Always give a buffer because something is going to happen to where, you know, if you give them a date, then you're going to be up all night trying to get something done and then you're going to be rushing it. And that's just not a good feeling. Aren't you still doing that even with the buffer? (laughs) I mean, you are. (laughs) Budget is always such a crunch time. No matter how early you start, you always feel like it's down to the wire when you're trying to finalize things. Exactly. No, that's funny. We can definitely relate. It's fun how you can see that no matter what, company you worked at, there's a lot of similar things. Absolutely. So the next question here is we always like to ask is what is something unique that you can share about yourself with our audience? Okay, sure. So as I mentioned earlier, I got started later in the FPNA world. Well, prior to that, I was an electrician. So I was out there programming robots, wiring buildings. I worked for one of the big three and that was an experience in and of itself. (laughs) But it definitely taught me some things that I still use today. Communication, problem solving for sure, because I'm sure you can imagine, hey, when something goes out, you got to figure out why it's out and, and how to work that. And the most interesting part for me was definitely programming robots and learning about all the different axes and, and making them move. And it was an experience. <laughs> I learned a lot. So I don't think many people know that, yeah, prior to FPNA. I was an electrician. Nice. My dad was an electrician. So I understand that one. Oh, wow. Great. Next question. This is one we ask everybody. One of our favorite questions. As you may know, DataRails, who is our sponsor, they're big fans of uh, Excel, having built an FPNA platform in Excel. So what's your favorite Excel formula, function, feature, favorite thing about Excel? So my favorite thing about Excel is definitely the shortcuts. When I first started using Excel, I didn't know many shortcuts. And so it would take a long time (laughs) to sometimes get things done, just basic stuff done. So for me, learning shortcuts helps you become efficient so that you can move around quickly, even if you don't have a mouse, even if you, you know, you can just move around, like move it across sales or whatever, copy and paste, all of those things. I'm not going to sit here and talk about all the shortcuts, but for me, it's the shortcuts are key for, to me for being efficient in Excel. Do you have a favorite shortcut? One you maybe use the most often or that you couldn't live without? I mean, I guess the, the really, I mean, it's really basic. It's like the, the copy paste functions, the insert row and all of those things is, I mean, like, I, can't, I can't pick one. Paul. I know you want me to pick one, but. I had to, I had to try. <laughs> it's all of the things that help you because you, what you're trying to get to ultimately is some type of analysis, some type of formulas and things like that. And so, and I'm sure you can appreciate this. You sometimes need to insert a column in between columns and things like that. So learning how to do that quickly is key versus, you know, manually. Yeah. And, and things in my head are process. going control C, control V, F2, alt HIC. Let's see. Um, control yeah, plus, H- control yes. minus. <laughs> yes. yes, I can relate. Yes. I'm laughing as they're all running through my head as you're talking. So absolutely. That's when you know you spent too much time in Excel. <laughs> that's when you've been in Excel way too long. Exactly. Because I'll do stuff and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, hey, shortcuts. You don't need to, you know, go up here and click on you know, edit and do this or click on insert, use the keys. You'll get there much faster. Yep. All right. So last question we have here, and then we'll give you an opportunity just uh, to let our audience know how they can reach out to you or best way to connect with you if they ever have any questions. But the question is, what advice would you offer for someone starting their career today in FP&A? Sure. So getting started, definitely consider the FP&A certification. That's going to help you again to understand where you are. Do you have that foundation needed to continue to progress in the career? Next, be curious. Always be curious about what is going on. Ask questions. 
research things, learn stuff, be curious, think partnerships. Instead of telling people what to do, work with people. Partnerships, meaning the businesses you work with, business units, things like that. Even across, like if you're, you know, again, in finance and marketing, build partnerships. You never know when you may need to reach out to to them for something. Up-level your skills often. It's no longer a game of being stagnant and staying in the same place because things change daily. And so working on up-leveling your skills is really critical. Join professional groups that helps you to expand your network, to see what else is going out on the out there in the world, in finance. And so it's really key to join professional groups. And just to have some people to bounce ideas off of, that's what I find is really helpful when you're thinking about things, is to have some other people to talk through it with. And then the last thing I'll say is, to diversify your experiences. I think I mentioned it earlier, a lot of times when you start in a career, you're in one place and you do the same thing over and over. Now, for some, that may be what they want to do. But if your plan is to continue to grow in your career and do other things, then diversifying your experiences, and I'll say something like a rotational program or something where you're hitting different parts of the business so you can see what's going on in different aspects of the business and you can get that extra understanding of finance. Great advice there. I liked everything you said and I've kind of sum a little bit of that up. It's really continue to learn, continue to build, build networks, diversify yourself, and always be learning and challenging yourself, it sounds like is, you know, a lot of what that advice is focused on. And I I would agree that's all, you know, great advice for someone starting their career. So you know, we've uh, finished up the formal interview, but last question, if someone wants to learn more about you or get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach out? Sure. For Carmen Consulting Group, I have a website, carmenconsultinggroup.com. And then you can also find me on LinkedIn and, and reach out to me directly there as well. I'm more than happy to answer any questions and have conversations. Well, thank you, Carmen. We appreciated your time today. I've enjoyed having you on the show and You have a great day. Again, thank you so much for taking time to share your experiences with our audience. Thanks, Paul. I really appreciated being here and thanks for having me. 